Today I want to talk to you about the church at Sardis, Alabama. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> actually, I hope that there's no church in Sardis, Alabama that is like this. But uh, this church today, of all the churches in Revelation, this church didn't get any commendation at all. There was nothing good that was said about this church. And man, I hope that we are never this church, but I hope that we will listen to the warning that Jesus gave. Look at chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he, which hath, or that hath, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. He says that thou hast a name, that thou livest, but art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast those things that you've received and heard, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, he says, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know the hour that I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names in Sardis, excuse me, even in Sardis, which have not defiled, uh, hath not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And then look at this, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. You can be seated. Let's, uh, we're going to talk this morning about a fruitless church. Actually, a uh, guy that I got to meet a long time ago, if you, anyone like to read commentaries or you like to do in-depth Bible studies, uh, there's a man by the name of John Phillips uh, that actually wrote a New Testament commentary. He has some in the Old Testament, but this guy, he was very sharp, uh, a British. He was very, very sharp. Um, the last time that I got to meet him, I saw him one year, and then the next year when I actually got to meet him, he had Alzheimer's. But man, this guy's mind was sharp as a tack, and uh, he was the, I call the alliteration king. He took all the New Testament books of the Bible, and he put it all in certain letters in each outline so that you could understand more and more and more, uh, uh, and kind of keep those things in your mind. I don't know about y'all, but as much stuff as we try to cram into this brain, it all doesn't stay there, does it? No. It, it seems like only the rotten banana peels and trash things stay there, and uh, we want the good things to stay. But we're just going to jump right in this morning. We're going to start talking about, number one, the commencing of this church at Star, uh, Sardis, the commencing of this church. If you look there in verse number one, you'll see that the Bible says, and unto the angel of the church in Sardis write. This has been the same thing for the last five weeks, okay, the last four or five weeks. This has been the same thing. Every single time God is giving us, or Jesus is giving us, the address of the letter and who the letter is to. He's trying to let us understand that it's to all of us, and even it's even to us today, but it was real particular. And Jesus is going to address things that were actually happening in that church. Now, there are some people that try to teach us that these are like not seven churches, but they're actually seven time periods of the church. And I don't see that. And the reason I don't see that is because, number one, is that these are real personal, personal letters that Jesus addressed these churches with. He addressed things that only these churches would know is going on within their church. And so it's very, very personal. Uh, sometimes people say that they believe that the story of the prodigal son or the story of, uh, or the story of prodigal son was actually a parable, but I don't believe it was a parable because I believe it dealt with certain ones. A certain man had certain sons, you know, and I believe God is really intentional about that. But we want to kind of cover the basis on all of this stuff and we want to talk about Sardis. Sardis was about 30 miles southwest of the church we talked about last Sunday. Can anybody tell me the church we talked about last Sunday? 
entire tire. I was hoping Brent was going to be able to say it, but he told me last week, he said, I'm not even trying it. Amen. <laughs> so the church at Thyatira, and uh, we talked about that uh, the church at Thyatira was uh, uh, going to receive what they actually looked for their whole lives. Amen. They were going to finally get the morning star, and uh, that's how it all wrapped up. I'm still living off last Sunday. I hope y'all are too, but it was about 30 miles southwest of uh, Thyatira, and uh, it's actually one of the oldest cities, and the, uh, uh, I guess you would say the most boastful city that was in Asia Minor. It was uh, founded in like A.D., uh, or, excuse me, B.C., 1220-something B.C., before Jesus came, about 1,200 years before he was there. They actually found it as a Greek uh, city. Uh, they had an Acropolis. They had a Necropolis. They had all kinds of things. They had a temple that was there later on that was built. But this city was actually almost leveled and almost destroyed in like 17 A.D., uh, an earthquake came and really just leveled the city all the way down. I mean, it really destroyed everything, but uh, this was also during the reign of Tiberius. You remember Tiberius being the Caesar at that time. Tiberius was about trying to revitalize things, and under his rule, they actually brought Sardis back up out of the heaps. It was like a phoenix, you know, rising out of the ashes. It was something that came back up, came back to life, but uh, this, this city here uh, actually suffered... Even before the earthquake, they suffered. They were actually ransacked twice. They were overran. Um, there was a king by the name of King Croesus. I don't know if you've ever studied about him in Greek uh, uh, history and all of the things, but he was a king that actually uh, some of the first monies, the gold imprinted uh, uh, monies that they actually stamped and actually printed out were from uh, this era. And uh, actually King Croesus was one that was known by all of his money, by all of his riches, and it was about in 546, 547 before Christ came, that actually he was in his biggest uh, rule, he was in his prominent rule, he had all kinds of possessions. He was also Hellenist in a lot of ways. And listen, that word can be defined in the actual word that you find in that word. He actually lived that way. He was a guy that was not just to, uh, totally devoted to God, or, or even God Almighty Jehovah, or even one God of the Greek gods, he was devoted to all of them. And he was a man that took all of his money, he partied, he lived very hard, he bought as much as he wanted, but also he had a place that was desired by other kings of different kingdoms. Uh, remember the guy in the Old Testament, we talk about him sometimes, the king of Persia. Remember Cyrus, the king of Persia. Uh, Croesus was the king of the Lydians, and uh, I would rather be of Persia or somewhere else. I'd, I'd hate to be called the Lydians. You know what I mean? It just sounds like a real girly club and uh, a real girly kingdom. But uh, history teaches that as King Croesus was overrule, he had this huge Acropolis, and he had a Necropolis. And what that is is that an Acropolis was a tall mountain or a tall hilltop or a mountaintop that was within a city. And they actually would go to the top of this hilltop, and they would build a, a fortified uh, uh, area, a fortified city to where they thought that if we could get the upper hand on people, they could never really come in and overtake us. You understand what I'm saying? Anybody in here, any of you guys ever played King of the Hill? Huh? Did you ever play with your big brother? Ever lose a lot? You know, play king of the hill, you know, the one that gets to the top of the hill usually has what? The more dominant power over the ones that are trying to get up the hill. Why? Because he has the upper advantage, right? He's up on top of the hill, and all he has to do is just throw you off. And that's what an Acropolis is. An Acropolis was a place where they actually went to the most elevated area of the city in order to try to sustain the life of that city. 
A necropolis is actually a cemetery. It's the word for cemetery or burial grounds. And in the city of Sardis, they were known for having the largest acropolis. They even had another temple during this time, and it was the temple of Artemis. We've talked about that already in two different churches. It was the temple of Diana, according to the Romans. And this temple, though, was not finished. It was never fully finished. And Sardis was known as a city that would begin things, but then they would stop. They would begin things, and then they would stop. They would always have works, and they were doing something great, but then they would always end up short of that, and it would just lay there as dead. And so in this big city, back in 546, 547 before Christ, it says that King Cyrus the Persia said that he was going to go in and he was going to attack King Croesus, and he was going to take all of the possessions. And so, all of a sudden, what happened? Whenever they came in and brought their armies, all of the armies of King Croesus went and ran to the Acropolis. They went to the fortified walled city, and they stood up on top, Brother David, and they were actually aiming down at them, ready to kill them. And so the other army of the Persians couldn't get any closer because why? They would all be overtaken. And so King uh, Cyrus of Persia, he said, I'll tell you what, any of you soldiers that can get us access into there and we can go up to that Acropolis without being killed or the numbers being killed, he said that he would give them anything in his kingdom. He would give them possessions, he would give them monies, he would give them all things. And so the soldiers would watch, and as they were watching and waiting, some of y'all look like y'all never read this stuff in history or in the Greek. Uh, Is it Greek to you? But anyway... I throw those jokes in to keep you alive. And I know they're not very good, but they do wake you up because you go, that's just nasty, that's just horrible jokes. But anyway, they actually said, if you can tell us, and so the soldiers were watching. you got to imagine, if you were the guy that actually saw something or how to get in there, man, you would be known as the greatest soldier around. And that's what the Greeks wanted more than anything. They wanted press. I mean, the Persians wanted more than anything, and the Greeks wanted was what? Prestige, power, honor. So as those Persian soldiers waited and they watched, One actually, it says in history, that one actually saw a helmet that fell off the wall of the Acropolis. And the helmet of that soldier went down, and he watched that soldier climb down the secret way down the wall. And he actually picked up his helmet, and he went back up that same way. And he went and told the king of Persia, Cyrus, that we found a way in. They climbed up there, overtook the city, and ransacked everything. And you say, Brother Steve, what does that have to do with anything? Not right now, but later on it will help. Amen? That's the history of that city. It was one that was, uh, it had this, this, this uh, story known that they would have good times and then boom, death would come. That they would have good times of living and then boom, they would be ransacked. And twice that happened. In the other time, it was actually tunnels that was dug out that they actually went through the tunnels in order to get inside and they overtook the city then too or the Acropolis then too. Listen, Sardis was known for that huge Acropolis but that actually became a weakness because they never watched out. They were too free with how they were getting up and down or in and out of there. But you know what Acropolis, as far as the Acropolis is, everyone saw it. Because when you walked into the city, Brother Lee, when you walked into the city of Sardis, it says that you could see this Acropolis because why? It was the most elevated point. But all around the Acropolis was the Necropolis. And the city of Sardis was known for that more than anything else. You say, well, why? Because it said that they were a thousand hills of tombs. 
Actually, they said that you could see the necropolis of the city of Sardis from seven miles away. So I guess like Chattanooga, right? Uh, seven miles away. You go up there to Lookout Mountain, you can see all of these things. Why would this city have so much death? Why would they have such a huge necropolis and a huge cemetery? Because why? They were ransacked over and over. And this city is, when Jesus is looking down at this city and telling the angel of this church, the pastor of this church, all of these details and all of these things, he's telling him, I'm writing to you. And he's saying, I know who you are. I know everything about you from a historical point. I know everything that's happened unto you. I know how Cyrus came in and overtook you. I know how earthquakes have came in and actually have brought everything level. I know how all of this has happened to you. And so Jesus says what? To the church at Sardis, he's the one that's writing, Brother Carl. The second thing that we see is Jesus gives, again, his characteristic. He says, this is who is the one that's writing unto you. Look at what it says in verse 1. These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now when you look at that, there are a lot of people that have their... Uh, they have their wisdom, they have their understanding of what they think the seven spirits of God are. The Bible even teaches us that the seven spirits of God are before the throne... The Bible teaches us about the seven spirits, and if you look at the scriptures, it's actually capitalized. And when you look at that, only in the scriptures do we read about the spirits of God, or the Spirit of God, being the Holy Spirit of God, being in the person of God, is it capitalized when it speaks about an actual person. And when you look at the scripture, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm writing to the church at Sardis, who has had much trouble, but I want you to know that the person that is writing you, listen, has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He wants you to know that he's saying, I have the perfectness or the perfection of what? The full completion and perfection of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, why would Jesus write a church Sardis telling them that they had some things wrong, that they had a name that they were alive, but yet they were dead. Why would Jesus say, I want you to know that I have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars? What is he talking about? He's talking about how, listen, the Holy Spirit of God and Jesus, when they're together, it is complete. It is the wonderful, complete package, Father, Son, Holy Spirit of God. And what he's talking about is that, listen, what does the Spirit do? In the Word of God, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God has never, ever does it bring death. The Spirit of God does not bring death. The Holy Spirit of God over in the Scriptures, all through, always does what? It brings life. The Bible says in Genesis that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And while He was speaking this world into existence, the Holy Spirit of God was hovering over it to do what? To bring life to it. To blow breath of life into that. When we see in the beginning of the book, we see that the Spirit gives us life. Amen? Number two, God breathed. Listen, God's Spirit was breathed into Adam, and God's creation became what? A living soul. God's Spirit hovered over Mary in the New Testament. The Bible does not say that the Holy Spirit of God and Mary actually got together in a way of, of human-like fornication or sexual relationship. It says that the Holy Spirit of God actually hovered over her and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Why? How could you conceive of the Holy Spirit? See, our minds only think the only way you can conceive is if you have a male and a female. Because why? That's the human thought process. That's what we see all the time. But the Spirit and the Word of God tells us that the Holy Spirit of God hovered over her and she conceived life of the Holy Spirit. Why would God do something like that? Because He was telling you, I don't need a father over my son that's coming. I am father enough. 
Amen? He's saying, I don't need the man to have a miraculous thing, but yet this woman that was highly favored, flavored, amen? Highly favored and flavored and blessed, it says that she, what? Conceived of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that it was in such a miraculous way that whenever her cousin heard the news that the baby inside her womb jumped for joy. Amen? Listen, God's Holy Spirit not only did that, but it descended upon Jesus Christ when he was being baptized. Why? Because it was pointing to what Andrew said yesterday in Brotherhood, to a brand new way of new blessings, of better covenants and better promises. What was it? It was actually descending upon him, not because Jesus needed the Spirit, but the Bible was saying that life now is found where? You'll find it in whom the Spirit is resting on. It's found in Jesus. Amen? Here's the other thing. Listen, God's Spirit was breathed into the disciples as they begin their gospel ministry. The Bible says before Acts chapter number 2 that says Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive you the Spirit. Receive you the Holy Ghost. Why? Because they needed the Holy Ghost to be empowered to present the gospel. Then the Bible says that there was 120 gathered together in an upper room. The Bible says that what happened to them? They were filled with the Holy Ghost of God. It says that they ran out into the streets and began praising God. Not preaching, but praising God in their own language. And other people were going, what's going on here? They said, how can we hear these people? They're speaking their language, but how do we understand them in our language? And you know what they summed it up to? Surely they must be drunk at 12 o'clock in the daytime. You know what Peter said? He said, how can somebody be drunk at 12 o'clock in the daytime? Right? And what he was, he's not talking about us today and all of our man-made vices and man-made alcohol. He's talking about in the natural way that everything was produced. It would take them all through the day. That was why they would become gluttonous wine-bibbers because they would have to drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink in order to get drunk. And he said, this is not what you're thinking. He said, these people are filled with the Spirit of God. Amen. Are, are you filled with the Spirit? Amen. Listen, it, then it does. It controls you. It changes you. Listen, not only that, but the Bible says that God's Spirit was given to the Jews after that, given to the Samaritans after that. The Bible says it was given to the Gentiles after that. God's Spirit, all through the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, is life, 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 life. It is not slain in the Spirit. It does not come down, get slain in the Spirit, and you fall out dead. That is not what the Scriptures say. When John fell at the feet of Jesus in Revelation chapter number 1, he did not fall backwards in a slain attitude that the Spirit killed him, but he was so overwhelmed with the Spirit that the Bible says that he fell at the feet of Jesus. If you're standing in front of me, Jacob, and I'm standing in front of you, and I fall at your feet, I don't fall backwards as a dead person. I fall forward in holy reverence and adoration of Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah, are you with me this morning? I know I'm going fast, but i got to get to something at the end. He says, i got the seven stars. You say, what is that, Brother Steve? It's actually a, a sign of the angels. Uh, seven stars were the angels. Brother Steve, I thought that he said he had the angels in his hand. But we understood that to be the word messengers. Uh, Angleos, which is messenger in the Bible, which means the pastors of the church. But now when he says he has those seven stars in his hand, is what he's saying is, is they are a reflection. They are actually a reflection of God, and they are sent out to accomplish God's plan. And he's saying, I have strength for you. What happened to Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? The Bible says he was in such agony, and he was so distraught, and he was praying, Father, if this cup's able to pass from me, then let it pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, right? 
And as he's praying, the Bible says that God sent an angel unto him to strengthen him. Listen, there's been many times that angels have come and strengthened the people of God, the men and women of God, and even Jesus, the Son of God himself. Elijah found himself in the wilderness running to Beersheba. And what was he doing? The Bible says he was running away from Jezebel. But the Bible says that while he was out there, it says God sent an angel and he placed out in front of Elijah a cruise of water and a cake. A jar of water and a cake. In order that when Elijah woke up and saw that, he said, do what? Eat. Eat and get strength and get up and go, right? You know what he was doing? God was telling Elijah. He said, Elijah, if I took care of the widow woman. You remember when you told that widow woman that if she would make a cake for you first and she would bring you the water and make a cake first that the barrel would never run dry? You remember when you told her all those things and now you're out here running away from Jezebel? Don't forget, Elijah, that I'll do the same thing from you for, for you. Amen. So the Bible says that the characteristics of God in this are is He has perfect Perfect power in what? In life, in the Holy Ghost of God. Amen. It's enough that the Bible says in Ephesians, we were dead in our trespasses of sins, but the Spirit of God, I love this word, has quickened us. Amen. What that means, it has been brought back alive. I wish I could hear somebody this morning say like they did back when that old movie came out about Frankenstein. It's alive! It's alive! You know, I wish somebody would say, I'm alive. Amen. Praise God. Listen, what about the commendation to this church? The commending. What was good that was said about this church? Nothing. The only church out of the book of Revelation, seven churches of Revelation, nothing, nothing good was said about this church. Later on, we're going to see that some of them didn't defile themselves, but there was nothing that I know your works, I know your patience, I know your labor, I know your servanthood, I know all of these things. I know how you can't bear those which teach iniquity. I know how you can't stand the Nicolaitans and all them. But nothing was given to this church. You know what was said? I know your works. There was no commending of this church. It was only this other thing. Criticism. Look at verse 1. It says, I know thy works, and that thou hast a name, and livest, and art dead. If he would have said in that scripture, if he would have said at the beginning of that, I know your works, and you have a name that thou livest. If it would have stopped there, we could look at that as some kind of commendation, some kind of you know, commending them, and, and having something to praise. But because of those last words, last three words, this is criticism. He says, I know your works, and you have a name that you are alive, that you live, but you're dead. You say, Brother see what was Jesus talking about in that? The same thing that Chuck Swindoll said, or Charles Swindoll said. He said this, he said, Sardis was a morgue with a steeple on top. Vance Havner said this, Sardis had it all in show, but didn't have anything in stock. Jesus said, you've got a name that you live as. What strong words that Jesus says. Listen, we can almost hear as if the commendation is coming and he's about to tell them all of your programs, all of the things that you're doing, how you look busy and you're like the little busy bees and you're running around and doing all these things, but yet you're like busy bees that have no pollen. You're, not, you're just running yourself around. You look like a church. You have the foundation of a church. And not only that, even in the city that you live in, in the community that you live in, you have a name that you're alive. In other words, when people pass by, they see parking lots full. When people pass by on Saturday, they see things and ministries happening. They see all this stuff. But Jesus tells this church, he says, but you're actually dead. You say, man, what? what gives Jesus 
the right to say that about the church because he's the ones with eyes as a flame of fire. He's the one that walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And if you remember that and what it means, it means that he has the eyes to be able to judge and to see through all of our labor. And he can see to the heart of it all. And not only that, he's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, which means he's walking in the midst of all seven churches. And he knows everything about them. You know, when you think of this church, Sardis, it was probably full of people. It was probably full of programs. It probably had all of this stuff. And I'm not going to get into big, big detail, but it had probably building programs. It probably had uh, big resources. It probably had Sunday schools, all of those things. But when Jesus looked at him, he said, you got a name that you're alive. And everybody thinks you are. But look at the words one more time. He says, and are dead. That's strong. He says, you're dead. You look good outside. But you're dead. You know what he's comparing them to? He's saying, you look like the tree that actually has grown up and it's large, it's branches and even the birds hover in the branches and it's even got leaves, but inside that tree is already dead and it's just a matter of time before it shows on the outside. You know what Jesus is actually saying? Listen to me. He's saying, I've seen this before somewhere. I've seen this somewhere before. You remember the Bible says that as they were coming into Jerusalem to the Temple Mount, the Bible says that Jesus went to look upon a fig tree to do what? To get the fruit off the fig tree. And when he went over there, because the fig tree presented itself with its leaves, because the fruit actually blooms out, then the leaves, but it had leaves, and Jesus searched under the leaves to see if the fruit was there, and it was not there. You know what he did when he come back? He said, no man will eat of the tree anymore. Jesus is saying, you've presented yourself falsely, and you actually say that you're alive, but you're dead. Man, we really, really need to pay attention and listen to that. How many of you have ever heard of the star that's named Proxima Centura? Anybody ever heard of that star? Anybody in here got a star named after you? Somebody did something great and they named a star after you and put it on a piece of paper and all that stuff. You know what I mean? I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying there are stars and stars and stars. But Proxima Centura is, or Centura is actually the closest star that we have. It's the closest one. They say it's 4.237 light years away from us. You go, brother, see, how far, that, how far is that? You know what I mean? If we were to get in a shuttle and go, y'all would be tapping me on the shoulder going, how much farther? How much farther? 4.2 light years away from us. That it actually takes that long in order for the light from that star to get to where we are. You think about that. That is the closest one. It actually, Proxima Centuri, is actually the Latin for the closest one of that constellation, that Centuri constellation. It's like, man... It, that far away, how far is it? It's 24.9 trillion miles away from us. You say, Brother Steve, have you been there? No, no, I haven't. No, I've not been there. Do you think it's that far? I don't know. That's just what I'm actually told. I actually read and studying about science and astrology. They tell us that it's that far away. Here's my thought process, and I'm about as country as cornbread and butter beans, so this is the way I think. If that thing is 4.2 light years away from us, 24.9 trillion miles away from us, and it actually takes the light when they actually do the speed of light and they actually do all the calculation stuff, and it takes that thing 4.2 years for the light to actually reach us, could that star already be dead and blown out and burned out? And we wouldn't know it for until it gets here. That's my thinking is that we wouldn't know until it actually gets here. You know, church, stop for a minute. We may be in a dead church and not actually know that it's dead until what happens? Until that fruitlessness shows up. You know, there are people that are still 
trying to hammer away in a dead church. And you say, Brother Steve, what would that be? I don't know if you've ever heard of Tom Rainer before, but he's, well, he used to be the president of Lifeway uh, Christian Bookstores and uh, actually Lifeway Christian Resources and stuff. But in 2014, he wrote a book and sent it out to all the churches, and it was called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. An autopsy of a church that's already dead, a deceased church. And he said these things. I want to read these to you. And uh, he said these few things about how you can figure out if the church is dead or it's on its way to closing. Number one, they treat the past as if it's a hero. Number two, they refuse to adapt to the needs of the community that is around them. Number three, they move the focus of the budget inward instead of outward. They allow the Great Commission to become the Great Omission. Letting the church become preference-driven out of selfishness and their own personal agendas and fight and argue over music and styles and what should be played and what shouldn't. Seeing the tenure of the pastors decrease and not increase. Pastors that come for a year to four years instead of those pastors that are willing to stay. Failing to have regular corporate prayer together. Having no clear purpose or vision and obsessing over the facilities. How ugly is it that churches close? And we know that they do. There's actually a church building today that I wish that we could pick it up somehow and put it on this property. It's actually a church that seats about 300 people, and we all know that we need a little bit more room, a little bit more seating. It has a half gymnasium and all kinds of things. And you know how many people were there when it actually closed down? still closed today? Two. Because, listen, sometimes... We can blame it on demographics, and we can blame it on all this stuff, but when a church refuses to repent, the church refuses to realize the deadness that they're in, and they don't want to walk in the Lord, there are many of them that close all the time. They shut the doors down. Listen, do you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of these. I've told you about them before, but you know who the two deadheads of the church are in the church in Sardis is? Number one, those that talk about what they're going to do, and the other one is those that talk about what they've already done. When the church sits around and talks about everything they're going to do, and then they sit around and talk about everything that they've already done, then the church is dying. Because it's not about what we are going to do, and not about what we did in the past. It's about what we're doing now. It's about what we do at this present time. How sad that this church at Sardis was also, Brother Bill, positioned in a city that had what? One of the largest necropolises than any other city. They actually said this about it, that they called this necropolis cemetery on a thousand hills, that it was just hill after hill after hill after hill of dead people and dead things. Listen, Jesus is not about the dead things. He's about the life things, the life and the things that we're doing through the Spirit. And so Jesus looks at this church and he tells them, Brother John, in verse number 2, he says, I have correction for you. He said, I have nothing good to say, but I do have some correction for you. Look at verse 2. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before the Lord. I've not found those things perfect before the Lord. That's correction. Amen? Listen. He says we need to stay awake with a watchful eye. The Bible says that you need to do what? Be watchful. You need to be what? And it means to have a ready eye, open and ready to go. If anything, Jesus is reminding them of what? Are you with me? Jesus is reminding them of something. What's he reminding them of? He's reminding them about their past. 
Had they had watchful soldiers, then they would not have allowed that helmet to fall over and they would not have allowed themselves to be seen as they crawled down the wall because a good soldier does what? Does not allow the enemy to come in and to overtake them, but is careful in every thought process so that the enemy will not find anything to use against them. But he says you need to be watchful. And if any city understood what it was in the warning to be watchful, it should have been Sardis. Of all people, you've allowed them to come in and climb up the wall. You've allowed them to come in and come through the tunnels. Listen, he said you people need to wake up. He said because Satan, your adversary, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's going to come in at any time. He says this second thing. He said you need to strengthen the things that remain and are ready to die. Jesus, listen, it's so awesome that Jesus is saying you are dead your works are dead and you are dying but he's given them another ray of hope and he's saying strengthen the things that you actually have there are some things that are gone you may go into life eternal as an amputee because certain things about this church has died but that doesn't mean that everything has to be dead it means to hold on to the things that remain listen he says I've not found your works perfect before God why would he say hold on to the things that remain strengthen the things that remain because we're talking about a physician who can heal there were people that could not find anybody else to heal their friend but they cut a hole in the roof and found a man named Jesus there was a woman that could not find any doctors and blew all of her money for 12 long years and could not find any remedy for her condition but actually the Bible says she got worse and worse and worse but she came and found a great physician called Jesus one day if you read the book of Luke and you read through the mindset and the eyeset of a doctor or physician Luke you'll understand that of all four gospels Luke wrote about the miracles of Jesus more than any of them. Why? Because in a doctor's standpoint, he wrote it out as miracle, miracle, miracle from who? The great physician. There's an old song that says a bed holds a body and it's dying in pain. And the doctors have tried, but all hope is in vain. But all of a sudden, all at once, the great physician steps into the room. Amen? Listen, and heals this person. There's power. And Jesus is saying, I have perfect power. Then you need to strengthen the things that remain. And he gives them a caution. Look at this caution in verse number three he says remember he's going to give them five things he says remember how you've received and heard and hold fast and repent and therefore thou shalt not excuse me if therefore thou shalt not watch I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee he tells him number one he says you need to remember what you've received and what you've heard look at the scriptures Hebrews chapter 2 verse number one through four he says therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip for if the word spoken of angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And he's saying, listen, how are we going to stand before God? And tell him we didn't know when he's given us all of this wisdom to know and to understand. Amen. He said he's given us not only the word of God has he given us that they received and then they turned around and preached it to you. He said, but he also tied with that word of God to show you the authority of that apostle. What? The gifts of the Spirit of God. Amen? Listen, he says we need to remember what we've received and what we've heard. And he said we need to hold on to it. We need to hold on to what we know. Listen, the Bible says that we're in the last days. And in the last days, perilous times would come. 
The Bible says what? We need to hold on to the Word of God in those last days. He even give us, Brother John, Scripture about what would happen in the last days so that we could hold on to the fact to know that what? Those things are going to happen. And we don't need to be afraid because he's already said it's going to happen. Listen, we need to hold it fast. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21 says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. He said, Son, grace be with thee. Amen. He said, Timothy, hold on to it. He was encouraging Timothy, saying, hold on to the Word of God. Hold on to the faith. He said, he told him also in 2 Timothy chapter 1, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, listen, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. He says, hold on to it. Now here's another word. We haven't really talked about this very much, but probably all of you hopefully will know, and I'm just teasing about that, but he says, repent. He told them the caution. He said, remember what you've heard, received and heard, hold fast. And then he says, he sums it up with this, repent. See, sometimes every Sunday we think we can get past that word repent, but it keeps coming back. Preacher keeps talking about repentance. And you actually think that he's talking about all of the lost people and repentance. But no, 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 no. No, uh-uh. He's talking to a church here. And he's telling this church to do what? That we should be in continual repentance. You don't come to the altar once when you're five and repent. No, you meet God daily and repent of your sins. You repent over, and you say, Brother Steve, you mean get saved over? No, 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 no. I'm talking about repent from your sin every single day. The same one that I committed when I was a long, long time ago? No. Your everyday failures and sins before God. You can't meet the world without meeting God and saying, God, forgive me. Now, let me tell you something. I'm going to warn you. Those of you that actually think in your mind that you've gotten to the place where you don't need repentance anymore, you are in dangerous and calloused grounds. You are on a place that your heart is becoming colder and harder and harder and harder, and you're not being sensitive to the Spirit because if you tell the truth, you'll know that even the thought that you had on the interstate, even the thought that you had while you watched television, even the thought that you had when someone made you mad, listen, even those thoughts that come out and even come out in actions of sin sometimes, you have to have repentance. There is a continual forgiveness for our sins. And listen, the Bible tells us, Brian's favorite verse, that if we confess our faults, amen, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a continual thing for the Christian. It should be our companion. But listen to what he says, number four. He says, if you don't, he says, if you do not watch, I will come on you like a thief. Now listen, before you actually mark Jesus up as some kind of thief, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that it will be a surprise upon you and you will think it is a thief. Jesus is not a thief. He's not a sinner. What he's using is, is the illustration and he's saying, I will come upon you as a thief. When does the thief come upon you? Does anybody in here know when the thief comes upon you? We don't. We don't know when the thief comes upon us. If we knew when the thief was going to come upon us, we'd be a little bit better prepared. Right? As much as we think that we're preparing, we got cameras everywhere. It doesn't matter. We got cameras that can go all the way down and see the ant's eyeball. But a security camera can't even get a picture that's clear. The person, every person caught on security camera says, Have you seen this person? No, unless he's like a fuzzy person. You know what I mean? Is his face always that blurry? We can't even get security cameras to do those things, right? Jesus is saying it will happen 
like that. It will happen without warning. It will happen without your knowledge. And it will happen so fast and immediately that you'll be what? You will actually think that a robber or a thief has come upon you. You need to pay attention. Matthew says this, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. He says you need to be ready. He's telling this church that they need to be watching. The last thing he told them is because you will not know the hour. You won't know the hour when I come. You need to be looking. Think about Sardis years ago, 547. Listen, they're probably thinking that they're in that fortified city, that Acropolis up on the hill, and they're probably thinking no one, no one can penetrate this. No one could come up here. No one could climb up here. Have you ever heard uh, of, a, of a place called Masada? It's at the Dead Sea. Probably the only one knows this and hates it is my dad. It's a place in the Dead Sea. And it's actually a, a Jewish place, a, a palace where they went out in the area of the Dead Sea. Why anyone would want that, we don't know. But we know that King Herod was, act, Herod was actually a great architect, designer of all things. He had a pool carved out into the Mediterranean Sea. The ocean water came in by the uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi. He was, he was a genius, but he was crazy. Power, basket case, kill all his family in order to stay a king kind of guy. You, get, you, you know who I'm talking about? But he was a, a wise man that could plan out all this. Well, he planned out a place in the Dead Sea, out in the mountains of the Dead Sea, and they called it Masada. And actually, when the Jews were running from the Romans, they went out to Masada. And as they got out there to Herod's palace, he had channels carved out in the side of the mountains where when it actually would flash flood and rain out there into that desert, it would go and fill up a cave and go and fill up a cave and go and fill up a cave and go and fill up a cave, okay? They actually went out there and the Romans were coming to attack. And because they were on this huge mountaintop, just like an Acropolis, they said that they couldn't get it. They actually boasted. And they actually would go to bed at night not thinking about it, not knowing that the Romans went to the backside. You know what they did? They actually brought in dirt, and they were bringing mounds of dirt in, even in their chariots. And they actually built a ramp all the way up to the backside of Masada and came in there and destroyed those Jewish people. And many of us today say this, that's never going to happen to me, Brother Steve. It's never going to happen to me. But I'm going to tell you something, you need to be watching not watching in fear, you need to be observing and looking. I don't know how you teach your children, but this is the way I teach my boys. Everywhere you go, you look around. Always be aware. You know, we live in an evil, evil day. They went to some swimming park the other day, and I told them, I said, you need to keep your eyes open. You need to be watching every single thing, listening to the people's conversation. Not eavesdropping, but when they get loud, you need to move away. You say, why would you do that, Brother Steve? Because I teach them to watch. But also teach them, if you ask them, that we need to be watching for Christ. We need to be watching for Jesus as he is coming. Here's the last thing, the certainty. And we're, this is the part where I really, really wanted to preach from. So if you give me just another hour or so, I'd appreciate it. He says, Thou hast a few names in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. Shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And when you read the Scripture, you should, act, you should pray and ask the Spirit of God to lead you first. But you should also, when you read Scripture, folks, you should ask questions to yourself. God, why, why, why are you telling me that? Why, why is that portion of the Scripture in there? 
why did you tell them that they would be clothed in white raiment? Why did you tell them that you wouldn't blot their name out? Why did you tell them that you will confess their name before Father? Evidently, when I look at this scripture, this is what I understand, is that the thing that Jesus had against this church is evidently they were moving farther and farther away from proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, and that's why they become a dead church. See, churches die because they quit proclaiming Jesus, and they start proclaiming themselves. They start proclaiming preachers. They start proclaiming ministries. They start proclaiming their buildings and their budgets and their monies and all these things. And when you quit proclaiming Jesus Christ, inwardly you are dying. And Jesus mentions to them at the end, and he says to them, he said, but if those that overcome, he said, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And what he's saying is, is if you're ashamed of me, and you move away, church, and you move to that point where you will not profess my name before the city and before your community and before the world that you live in, he's saying, listen, I'm not going to confess your name before my Father. He tells us that. But in this scripture, he says, you that overcome, you that stay in. He's saying, those of you that do not stain your garments. He says, what? He said, they have white garments. He says, for they are worthy. How are they worthy? They're not worthy because of themselves. I don't mean to upset you and, and make you think about what your mama told you when you were little, but you're not worthy because of who you are and because of your cute cheeks and your ears and all that stuff like that. No, the only way that you could ever be worthy is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that they were where they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, which both points to Jesus Christ, amen? But the Bible says in this scripture, you have a few names that have not defiled themselves. And he says, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. We need to know that church, <clears throat> we need to stay unspotted from the world. And if the church has got a problem today all across the board, it is actually stains and spots of the world inside the church. I know that it bothers you when we talk about living holy, living righteous, living pure before the Lord. I know it gets to people, and you actually think, this is what happens. You say, how do you know this, Brother Steve? Because I used to do this same thing, especially when I was lost. It's like the old lady, you know, you, you, you preach about, you know, sexual lifestyles, and everybody's like, hey, man, you shouldn't do that. You, you, you preach about, you know, doing drugs, and everybody's like, hey, man, you shouldn't do that. You preach about alcohol, and like, hey, man, you shouldn't do that. And the little old lady, the pastor was preaching, he preached about snuff, you know, and then she went, you're meddling now. You know what I mean? You, you've gone from preaching to meddling. <clears throat> you know why? Because it bothers us when things are named. Because we almost have this point in our minds where we're going, somebody's been in my garbage, somebody's been in my house, somebody's been, they've been looking all this stuff up. Evidently somebody saw me. That's not it. What that feeling is, listen, you ought to be thankful for it. It's the Holy Spirit of God that's stirring at your heart. And when the Holy Spirit of God, like an old preacher used to say, prod you. <laughs> Amen. You know, us modern preachers today, we say when the Holy Spirit of God stirs or pokes you. The old preacher said when he prods you. That's different. That's different. That's like a whipping and a whooping. They're different. They're much different. And God knows we need more whoopings than we do whippings. But <clears throat> that's the Holy Spirit doing that. It's not the preacher. So don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at me. The same book that I read out of that judges you judges me. And if I don't do that, then I'm a hypocrite. Okay, and you need to stay away from me. If I don't live by it, then I'm a hypocrite. You need to stay away. But if it's being preached and being lived, then, then you need to go, something's, something's up with that. The Lord may be speaking to me. And I need to confess. I need to do what? Repent. And I need to stop doing those things. The Bible says that 
You need to stay unspotted from the world. The church doesn't need to look like the world in order to reach the world. The church needs to look like Jesus in order to reach the world. But for some reason, we have this thought process in our minds that we need to look more like the world in order to relate to them, in order to reach them. That is not what he said. He says you are called out. You know what that means? You need to stand out. Not stand above. You need to stick out like a sore thumb. When they make fun of you because you don't cuss, and they make fun of you because you don't drink, or you won't smoke that dope, or you won't lie around with that girl or that guy, when they make fun of you in that, you're sticking out like a sore thumb. You ought to be thankful for that. You're not above them. You're not above them because you could easily fall into that sin any time. No, you're not above them. No, but God says you're called out. And we need to live called out. And he says those that are keeping their robes white, doing those, the raiment white, he says do that. And listen, I'm going to close. I think, Andrew, are you coming? Listen, he that overcometh shall be clothed in white raiment. Think about this. <clears throat> if somebody's dying, what do you want to do? You want to help. If, if, if somebody just passes out right in front of you, some of you have been trained in CPR. You know, some of you have been trained how to do those things. You, you need to be the ones to run over there and to jump and to help. Everybody else, you need to stay back and put your phone in your pocket. I had to say that. That's my flesh, but I had to say it. <clears throat> but these people need life. And Jesus tells them his characteristic. What was his characteristic, Andrew, in the beginning? He that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What he's saying is, is I have the perfection of the Holy Spirit of God. I have power to do what, Brother Brian? To give life. He's saying, I have a power, the power to restore life. And not only that, but even at those things that are weak and are dying, he said, I have the seven stars. I have this power to send down strength that you need. And when someone's dying, what do they need? Sometimes they need air. Sometimes they need blood circulating. Sometimes they need the pump in their heart to keep pumping and to start again. And they need that CPR. And you're on top of them, and you're giving them the compressions, and you're, you're, you're doing it to the, you know, the beat of the Michael Jackson song where you got to go, you know, you got to get it fast like that, and you're beating that heart trying to get it to come back. Jesus is saying, listen, if it's dead, I'm known for bringing dead things back to life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm known for doing what? Bringing those things that are spotted and I can wash them through my blood and make them clean and white as snow. He said, but I'm known for bringing life. But listen to this last part and we'll close. He says, I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Why does Jesus make such a strong statement about this? Many church members today, and, and just bear with me, don't tune me off. Don't, don't hang on your tradition. Let's go by Scripture and let's understand it. Book of life. Book of life, the phrase book of life is in the Bible eight times in the New Testament. <clears throat> Two times in the Old Testament. Out of the eight times in the New Testament, it's actually seven times in the book of Revelation. We really don't start talking about the book of life until we get to the book of Revelation. Really, really bearing down on it. Out of all of those times, only two times does it actually say Lamb's book of life. And those times are in Revelation 13 and in Revelation 21. Two times it's called Lamb's book of life. But it's called the book of life. It's actually capitalized L because it's not talking about what we think naturally here, just our life here. 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, but it is a book that judges all of those that will walk into life eternal. 
It's a book that actually says, if your name is there, Keith, in the book of life, that you will have everlasting life is what it's speaking of. The Bible speaks about in the book of Revelation, chapter number 20, and in verse number 11, all the way through verse 15, it says that he saw the seas give up the dead which were in them, and he saw the dead, both small and great, stand before the throne of God. Brother John, it says in there that the books, plural, were opened. And people argue about this, and we try to figure these things out, and there's nothing wrong with trying to figure things out. <clears throat> Me and Brother John's talked about it many times, but... This is not a life or death salvation thing, but it is something we think is very important. Very important. And you say, Brother Steve, I wonder what books are going to be opened there. And I have a thought process, and one of the things that I think, first of all, is that number one, the greatest book that we have is the Bible will be there. That out of that book, you will be judged by this book. You say, but Brother Steve, I haven't read all the way through it. You need to catch up. You need to read it. You'll be judged by the things. The Bible says you'll be judged by the things written therein. But the Bible also says that there's a book of life. Now, Brother Steve, is the book of life the same as the Lamb's book of life? I believe to be yes. And you say, well, what, what do you mean, Brother Steve? Do you think it's that way? Yes, because it's referenced those times, and only two times does it say Lamb's book of life. Add that, that beginning part, Lamb's book of life, in one scripture, and then the other scripture, it doesn't add it at the beginning, but it says the book of life of the Lamb. And you say, well, why, Brother Steve, would it be two different ones? Or why would it be the same one? I believe it to be the same one because of this. It's called the book of life. All the way up in Revelation. Till we get to chapter 13. What happens in chapter 13? The Bible says that the dragon is fighting against the church. Against the saints. And the Bible says that all of those people that were left on the earth, because the church is gone at that time, amen, and it says that he was going to bring an end to all this, there's going to be this tribulation time where people are going to be trying to be saved. It actually says that those that were written, that are not found on earth, written in the book of, the li of life of the Lamb, they're gone. And you say, why would he put Lamb in that point? Because now it's time to talk about victory. In the book of Revelation chapter 13, it's victory time, amen. He's not going to die again. No, he's talking about who's in that book. What does that book consist of? It consists of all of the children, all of the ones that are saved, that are saved by who? By the Lamb of God. Then it mentions it over there in Revelation chapter number 20, verse number 12. Why does it mention it's the Lamb's book of life over there in that scripture? Because it is the final culmination of victory. Now here's what we think as church, and hang on with me, bear with me. Here's what we think. We think as church, people, that when you come down, and Charlie, you came down and got saved, that God turns around and writes your name into the Lamb's book of life. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't teach that. You don't go and find where God's busy in heaven writing down people's names in a book. You read about what he said to the church at Pergamos. What did he say? He said, I write your name on a white stone and give you a new name that no one else knows. Amen. But it's not that he wrote it down in the book. You know why? Because this book is written. This book is already written. The Bible says so. The Bible says the names in the book of life were written before the foundation of the world. Now bear with me, don't you dare think I'm into any kind of Calvinist stuff. There are some people that say that God went ahead and pre-wrote the book and wrote down that, Ronald, you'll be saved, and, and you know, you'll be saved, Kim, and you'll be saved, uh, Ashley, and you'll be saved, Tori, that, that God predestined and pre-selected everybody, and now that we're just waiting around and God's just going through the book. No, 
The Bible teaches me that all people were elected unto salvation. All of you. Every person in here was chosen to be saved. Every person in here. But Brother Steve, what do you do with Ephesians chapter 1? Where it talks about Paul speaking that making your call and an election sure. And Paul speaking about the elect of God. And do you not know that you are the elect of God and you've been chosen in Christ and you've been favored in Christ? What Paul is doing is saying now that you realize and you have been saved and you know that, don't you know that God did that a long time ago and that all people are chosen to be saved? God didn't send His Son into the earth just to save you and you and you. He sent Him into the earth to save all of you. And there's a book that's written that says that your name... The Bible even says this before we ever get into the part of being saved, church. Before we ever get to the New Testament, Acts chapter number 2. I'm going to back up a little bit so I don't spit on you. Acts chapter number 2, where you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You, you, you know and you follow Him in believer's baptism. Before we get to that point, what did He tell the disciples as He sent them out in those companies and He sent out the 70? They all come back rejoicing. Craig, they all come back excited and they were rejoicing because why? They said that they were casting out demons. And Jesus said what to them? He said, I'll tell you what in Luke chapter 10 verse 20. He said, you shouldn't rejoice that the, that the demons or that the angels or that the spirits are subject unto you. But rather you should rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Amen. Written. Not going to be written. Written in heaven. You say, Brother Steve, what are you trying to get at? Here's what I understand from reading God's Word and what He tells this church. You'll be judged by the Bible. And you're going to be judged if your name is written in the book of life, which is the Lamb's book of life. And you're going to be judged by every work you ever did. You are either going to stand before God Almighty, Jesus Christ, and you're either going to be judged by grace through faith over here, by being in the Lamb's book of life and repenting of your sins, or you're going to be judged by all of your works. And it's always, throughout all Scripture, come down to those two things. And you can't be saved by being good. No, if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to realize, I trust Jesus. And realize that He has elected you to salvation. But here's what happens. The Bible says in Exodus chapter number 32, verse 31 through 33. He says, O Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned, a great sin. And listen, stop right there, Josh. He said, they've made gods of gold. Gods of gold. What did they do? Listen to me. They rejected. They rejected God, Brother John. They rejected Him. So what did Moses do? Look at verse number 32. The Bible says, Moses turned and says, Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, he says, Blot me out, I pray thee, out of the book that thou hast written. It's two times that the Bible talks about out of the book, the book of life, out of the book in the Old Testament, here and in Psalms chapter 69. Here's the other time. Look at this last scripture. God says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Whoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. What are you getting at, Brother Steve? It, it, it's not you come down and you get your name wrote. God's already chosen you to be saved. Well, what's the danger then, Brother Steve? Then why do I need to do anything? Because if you die without Him, and you die as a sinner, your name will be blotted out. You say, what? No way. See, the Calvinist believes that people are chosen and selected, but they, when they get to the Scriptures about how God blotted them out of the book of life, they can't explain it. 
You know why? Because that's not what it is. God chose you to be saved. And if you don't choose Him and you don't come to Him and accept Him as Savior, then listen, your name will be blotted out. You say, oh, I just don't believe that. Let me read the last scripture to you in the book of Revelation, chapter number 3, verse number 5. He overcometh. The same shall be clothed with white, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Is my name there, Brother Steve? God's chosen you to be saved. And Brother Bill, if you die without him, Brother Bill, and this is very important, if you die without him, and you die a sinner, and you reject him, and you follow other gods, and you follow yourself, Tells them, Brother Jack, doesn't it? It tells them. The scripture is clear. He will blot you out. Now, I'm not telling you that, Charlie, if you know you're saved, that God's going to write your name out. If you're saved, you're saved. You're saved. If you've trusted him, you just hang on to him. And that's what he's saying. There's a few of you that not defiled yourself. But there's some of you that need to understand. You need to understand the importance and those that were found or not found written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into hell. You'll be judged. So you can either stand by your works, which won't amount to anything, or you can say today, by faith, I trust Him that He's chosen me to be saved. I know now that I'm going to follow Him and I'm not just going to know that He has created me and wants me to be saved, but I'm going to follow Him in that creation. And I know that I'm going to be saved. Amen. Father, we thank You.